Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer and help support to those suffering from addiction. So today, we are going to be talking about an organization that I have been following for a number of years, and that's Faces and Voices of Recovery. And today we have joining us the Chief Operating Officer, Philip Rutherford from uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery. And Philip is going to be talking to us about the program, what they do, what they offer, and um, anything else that he'd like to impart onto the the audience regarding the organization. It's a big honor. I've been a big fan of Faces and Voices of Recovery for uh, quite some time here. I first got uh, introduced to the organization through... Um, really just kind of a, an accidental viewing of a documentary that was on television. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend that you get a copy of it called Anonymous People. Anonymous People, which was produced by Faces and Voices Recovery. And I've been a big fan ever since. So with that, Philip, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me. Um, and like Mike said, my name is Phil Rutherford. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Faces and Voices of Recovery. Uh, and I think you, you brought up something when you said an accidental viewing of, of a film that we put together. It, it's my journey in recovery has been a collection of accidents that landed me in a position uh, that I get a lot of joy out of. And I'm absolutely thrilled with what I get to do for a living and, and the opportunity that being a COO at a national recovery advocacy organization offers me. Just a little bit of background. Uh, most of my career was spent in the private sector, in the tech. Uh, I'm the child of the dot-com era. So tech, marketing, sales, that sort of thing. And my own personal recovery journey kind of brought me to a place where uh, sometime in the early 2000s, I, I, I stopped getting a lot of joy out of the hunt associated with sales and I really wanted to do something and contribute more to recovery, which I, which I valued. I also, um, I guess, catching up to around 2012 when anonymous people came out, I, I began to get the idea that it was not sufficient for me to talk within my particular 12 step circles, just about recovery. People outside of the 12-step circle were always asking me information about 12-step. And I, because uh, I'm not good at keeping my mouth shut, I probably <laughs> was really well suited to, to, to share that information. But it really sort of opened my eyes as well to the possibilities of promoting recovery rather than the illness. Um, so, like I said, the... The short story on me is I'm a person in recovery. I found my recovery through 12 step. And these days I talk about recovery to anyone who will listen, uh, much to the chagrin of policymakers on Capitol Hill. I get to go there and talk to them about why we have so woefully underfunded and criminalized uh, a treatable medical condition. So that'll be my, that's my opening salvo. What else you got for me, Mike? Well, um, how long have you been with uh, Faces and Voices Recovery? 
Um, I've been with Faces and Voices of Recovery since 2017. Prior to that, I was with a recovery community organization in Minnesota and uh, also did some sort of state uh, political work with, uh, with organization, with the other recovery organizations in Minnesota. Oh, fantastic. 2012. And, you know, um, one of the things, and I too am recovery and, and with the audience, we, we've, we've talked about my, my recovery before and Philip, you know, for me, the realization that what I had was not a moral issue, but it was a disease. And this seems to be an area of great controversy in this country, actually around the world. I, I do a lot of work with folks in recovery in Europe. And um, actually, I think in, in Europe, it's probably even less looked at as a disease, as a, as a moral issue. Uh, but that's another discussion. But here in, in this country, I had always, um, you know, it was weird early when I was trying to get into recovery, I would hear things like, you know, if you were just a better employee, if you worked out more, if you took better care of yourself, if you loved your wife more, your kids more, if you went to church more, all these things would help towards your recovery. And I found later that none of that had anything to do with it. It was, I had this predisposition towards addiction and it was progressive and it was deadly. And I needed to treat it as a disease like any other disease. You know, if you have cancer, there are certain things that you need to do. If you have diabetes, there are certain things you need to do. Um, if you have high cholesterol, certain things you need to do. And addiction is no different. And, and it was not, and that seems simple to understand, but I didn't understand that. But when I understood that, things got better. And I know that with all the things that I've done in my life, and you may share the same sentiment that I have, that of all the things that I've done in my life, all the accomplishments that I've had, the, the biggest, most important, and, and frankly, accomplishment that I've had in my life that I'm the most proud of is my own recovery. And Anonymous People was a game changer for me because that was the first time I had heard people and i and when i say people i mean people that most of us would know their household names that say you know recover i'm proud of my recovery this is not something i should hide under the table it's not, nothing i should be ashamed of and not talk about it but i want you to know about it and the reason i want you to know about it is because if you suffer the way that i did you can do what i did and get help there is help out there and um i really really respect that work and um, do you share that same sentiment and sort of that same view on, on the disease? And what is the message that you would like people to hear today regarding recovery? Because I know there's people listening to this podcast that are at that decision point right now. What, what do you think of that, Phil? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And the reason that I think I said something like what you just said, like the most important thing in my life is the decision that I made to pursue recovery and, and to continue to stay in recovery. I think I said something like that and I, I'm married and I, I said something like that. And my wife uh, pointed out to me that there may be some other things in my life that I should be thinking about that are really important. <laughs> uh, you know, like her and my kids and, and it's true. They, those things are terribly important. The, the challenge for me is that my substance use disorder progressed to a point where it was it was an all or nothing kind of proposition. So 
all of those other things, all of those other gifts in my life, like my wife and my kids and my career and my, and all the things in life that make, when we talk about what makes life worth living, all of those things are directly connected to my ability to stay in recovery. So in that way, of course, it is the most important thing. And the, the moral component of it, I mean, there are a variety of factors that, that, that make that up. I mean, obviously, the behavior of people with, with substance use disorder is not uh, always, shall we say, uh, beyond or above reproach. But I think that the challenge is that we're talking about, like I said previously, a treatable condition. Yeah. And I think that I think that the there is a there is a global history of of treating people that have disorders, specifically mental health disorders, differently. There is a there is a moralization component that happens to those things. So I don't know that we are we are not uniquely persecuted in that way, but given the mountain-sized pile of evidence to the contrary about substance use disorder, it is a bit disappointing that people continue to, to, to bear that, that same level. So I kind of, I kind of think of it as a, I think of it as a, in, at least in the United States, I think that we're making progress, um, although the progress is uneven. And then we have some like connections and uh, there's a, a group that we're related to in the UK and in South America and in, in Africa. And you're correct that the attitudes there are perhaps even a few years behind where they are here. So we, we really hope that the work that we do can spread that message. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I agree with you on uh, what's going on in Europe. I think I think that they, they are a few years behind. And uh, I just spent this last week talking to Sharon Webster from Recovery Dundee in Dundee, Scotland, and mm -hmm. she pointed out as much. And so we, we hope that the message will get spread there as well. And uh, what I, you know, and actually what I would love to see, and, and I'm going to ask you um, about the projects that you guys have lined up in Faces and Voices of Recovery, but um, it, I'm a big fan of that documentary, as I mentioned, but um, do you have any plans to do similar do follow-on documentaries? And have you considered, uh, basic, basing on what you just mentioned about the, the United Kingdom, maybe doing another documentary, but focusing it on maybe people over there? Um, or what other programs do you have lined up? Well, we have a, a sort of a baker's dozen of things going on right now. Um, the specifically in other countries, we do not have something on the drawing board right now for a follow up there. But it, just when you said that, I was like, yeah, why aren't we doing that? Um, like any like any nonprofit, we we look for places where we can have the most impact with the with the budget we have but that the the idea of of doing something in an, in another country is very appealing to me so i as far as things go not that your listenership is particularly interested that's going on the list because i think it's something that we we honestly haven't fully explored um domestically though we consistently and have been since the anonymous people came out run 
classes on messaging. And yeah. the, 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 the thing that you spoke about specifically, the sort of uh, catharsis that you went through and sort of the same thing that I went through was going from this position of kind of a shame-based, I can't tell anyone that, that I have uh, substance use disorder or addiction. I can't tell anyone to being able to say it loud and proud. And in, in my case, being having the opportunity to stand in the, in, you know, and, and address a member of Congress and say, hey, I'm a person in long-term recovery and this is what it means to me. That catharsis uh, requires some training. So that's something that we do nationwide uh, through a, a series of trainings. We work with, we have a membership organization called the Association of Recovery Community Organizations and through them and also independently, we put on trainings called Our Stories Have Power. And it is yes. the it is the baseline component of how to tell a recovery story in public. And number one, it's important to to be able to share that message and still still preserve one's own uh, beliefs about a recovery pathway. Uh, and again, I, I know that your listenership are people that may be involved with specific 12 step pathways. One of the things that we train in our, our stories have power training is how to advocate with anonymity because there it is, it is anonymity is something that is at the cornerstone of, of the 12 step philosophy. But I think Bill Wilson, actually, I know for a fact, Bill Wilson and Marty Mann and a number of other people that were directly associated with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, testified before Congress, and they did not testify as, hey, I'm the king of AA or I'm the queen of AA. They testified as citizens, but it was well known who they were and what they were. They weren't talking about the inner workings of those fellowships. They were talking about the, the, the central message that we carry today, which is that recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. And um, and so the, the Our Stories Have Power training is something that allows people to get comfortable with that. And it does take a measure of practice. I can tell you that on day one of trying to tell my recovery story in public after years and years in the 12 step program where I'd been told not to ever tell anyone anything. Yeah, was, I did too. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was challenging on day one. Um, and today it is, it is second nature. So that's, that's one yeah. big piece uh, that we, that we do. Um, I think another thing that we are really focused on in this age of, data collection and, and talking about uh, talking about substance use disorder as a disease is that in order to in order to support a that it's a disease and B that people that recovery is possible, you need data. And so we are engaged in a national data collection effort around people that that use peer-to-peer -peer supports and and Kind of aggregating and collecting that data and reflecting it back to essentially anyone who'll listen. So, like I mentioned, going on the hill, we go on the hill with data around people that are engaged in peer support programs around the country. And in a shocking turn of events, or what I like to call in other news, water is wet, people that stay engaged with peer support programs, a la 12 step or other mutual aid groups, their outcomes are better than, than people that don't. And that's just, that's, that's what our, that's what our data show. So yeah. um, the data collection component of it, I think is a, is a, is an important thing. And then I, beyond that, there's a, I said a baker's dozen, I won't go through and list all the things, but we do quite a bit of uh, best practice sharing and uh, collaboration with state government 
local government, uh, regional groups. There, there's a there's a lot of interest currently. Uh, unfortunately, through the uh, uptick in overdose deaths, there's a lot of interest in what to do, uh, and and so we are we're frequently asked about, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Yeah, and I, I'll tell you another, uh, Phil, just, you know, with world events and particularly events in this country right now with, with my background, and I know with, with my background, a lot of our listenership are first responders, police, fire, dispatch corrections, agents. Um, the, the, the community that I come from, professional community I'm, I'm talking about, there is, you want to talk about stigma, um, this is absolutely an area that you don't talk about. At least I was never trained to talk about. And that, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, again, the stigma of uh, addiction is weakness as opposed to disease. And that's a, a community, whether it's military, law enforcement, um, or corrections, you're, you're not to show weakness in any sh- way, shape, or form, which is great in the profession. You know, I think you need to have that confidence when you're working in those areas. But if you were an addict, or an alcoholic, um, that that idea of I'm powerless over alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or whatever your issue presenting issue is, that idea of powerlessness is something that is is really just sort of trained out of you, and that's a, a death nail if you're if if you're in that category. That's the category that I was in as well, and I think it's important to have people in those communities that hear other people from other people in those communities that it is not a weakness and you can get better and you need to get better uh, because you are in a uh, very toxic profession that if you are not practicing wellness, you are not practicing recovery and everybody in that profession needs to be practicing some form of well form of wellness, it will destroy you. And um, if you are predisposed towards addiction, again, that's a, that's a very dangerous slope, but uh, that's not a, an area that's openly talked about in that community. And, and uh, that, that might even be another, pro- not that I'm in the business of giving you ideas for projects, <laughs> but that might be a project. There you go. I guess I'm giving yeah. you, I am giving you that idea. Uh, yep. So um, I don't know how you feel I've, about I've that. Got, well, I've got my notebook open and I think some, <laughs> of the, some of the things that, some of the things that we've done and we have actually had an opportunity here in specifically in Minnesota to work directly with, some local sheriff's departments are counting here in Minnesota, they're arranged by counties, but to work with some county sheriff's departments to talk specifically about this and get involved with their uh, community response groups and do some training in that way to talk specifically about, I think another component part of the, of the training associated with, um, with the law enforcement folks that we did here was the, the science of addiction recovery, right? So not just that, okay, I think most reasonable adults can at least hear the statement that addiction is a disease or that substance use disorder is a disease. And they may have different opinions of it. They may have different personal experience that says it isn't. They can at least hear that. But actually going through and talking about the specifics of what that means, because to I, I found really quickly that saying it's a disease just like cancer, very quickly people can get their their defenses up and say, well, yeah, but you don't pick cancer, right? You don't. No one goes out and says I want cancer, and then obviously there's the 
the look at things that are behaviorally based like smoking or dipping tobacco. Those are things that can contribute to cancer, but still you don't pick it. Whereas with drugs and alcohol, uh, I'm sorry, with drugs like alcohol, you, you do go and select the substance. And I think just the understanding that the, uh, the disease substance use disorder is not so much the behavior of consuming the substance, but the, the, the uncompromising compulsion to seek the substance, that that is the illness and understanding that that is the thing that is driving all of the other components, right? And that little nuance, I've watched the light bulbs go off in people's heads where we're, when we're talking about it's an illness, it's not an illness, because we're not, we're not so much talking about the end behavior because the end behavior of someone with a, a particular type of cancer might be that they develop a, a, a tumor or they have a large, some, some large swollen part of their body. That's the end product. The beginning product is at a cellular level, something goes wrong and it creates a chain of events. As it pertains to substance use disorder, the thing that goes wrong is actually at a cellular level. And that, that, that inability to stop wanting, that inability to, to, to process consequences associated with use, that is the disorder. And that is, that is treatable, right? So, so getting, getting down to that level, and I know I'm down in the weeds, but getting to that level and in talking to, to law enforcement has, we've seen some success with that. Now, I think kind of going back to big picture, the fact of the matter is our data show that one in, like in every, in every family, I was going to say one in 10, it's like the number is actually more like one in seven, but roughly one in 10 have some direct connection to a person with substance use disorder. So it, 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 what frequently happens with law enforcement is there's this, there's this duality um, of, yes, it's weakness, but I've got family members that have it. So how, do, what am I saying here? Am I saying that, am I saying that family members are weak? What, what am I saying? And the component of understanding that it is a treatable disease and sort of bringing it, not just the people out in the street, but in the people in my family also have this is sometimes a tough, tough bridge to cross. Yeah, uh, you're right. And, I, and I've run into that with people. And, and that's the confusing part about it. And what I have found, uh, not just in law enforcement, but but across the country and, um, and and even beyond the United States, is the lack of understanding, the lack of education of what we know. Now, there's a lot about addiction that we don't know, right? And I think there's a lot about addiction that we're not ever going to know. But I do know this, that in my own personal journey and recovery, Phil, what, what happened with me, because I was, in my story, it was about a 10-year progression of me trying to get sober, trying to get sober. And, and it wasn't until somebody sat down with me and in that special way that only that, that person, and I believe that my higher power brought that person into my life and put addiction in terms that I could understand. And a lot of it was the education. It was, let's talk about what, you know, not a science lesson, but let's just, let's just talk it. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts. Here is what is going on with your body. Here's what's going on with your mind. And here's why you can't safely drink, why you can't do that. And they explained it in a way that made sense to me. And my life was never the same after that. And uh, I think that's what we need more of. And, and I think that will help reconcile in people's minds, not just law enforcement, but anyone else. How is it 
that I can intellectually understand the disease model, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling with this. Yeah, but they picked up the drink or they picked up the drug and, and, right. and reconcile that. And we talk about causes and conditions, you know, the, cause I know the first time I took a drink, you know, nobody said to me, you know, Mike, Hey, you can take that drink right there. But you know that if you pick up that drink and you have a genetic predisposition, um, you're going to start a process that's going to um, that's going to increase over time, and will get you to the point to where um, it will just be progressive and will ultimately lead in your death. But you go right ahead and you take that drink if you want to. Right. Nobody had that conversation with me, all right? Yep. And um, yeah. because we don't, we don't have those conversations. But and you and know, there's there's an exciting there's an exciting field of research around um, it's more nerd stuff, but there, there's an exciting field of research around epigenetics and what, so the, so there is the, there is the genetic predisposition. And, and like you, I also had a genetic predisposition to, to the illness. Um, but some of the, are you familiar with the rat park research? Uh, vaguely. Are, this is, so the short, I'll give you the short version. The short version is um, we take a group of rats. I know humans are way smarter than rats. Um, Most, not we all. <laughs> take, we take a, again, no judgment. We, we take a group of rats. We addict them to a substance, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol. We addict them to a substance. We, they, they meet all of the measurements for being uh, physically connected to those substances. Um, and in cases where there's not direct physical dependence, they demonstrate the symptoms of psychological dependence, right? So they're all connected, they're all hooked. Um, and then we offer them pro-social activities. So think rat volleyball, <laughs> rat knitting, like whatever, I don't know what whatever the rat uh, pro-social activities are, but a community where rats can be together. Um, and the the results of those experiments, and this has been this has been done on more than one occasion, is that one of the things that happens is that the rats that are engaged in those prosocial activities uh, lose their affinity for the substance. So, in addition to, and that's why I'm talking about epigenetics, because the genetics say that you'll have a certain number of them that will always be addicted, but that that is not what Rat Park demonstrates. Rat Park demonstrates the overwhelming majority of them go to the pro-social activities and they go to oh, be with the community of rats. So they're given the option to isolate and be alone and use the substance or go and be with a community and participate in the community activities. And the overwhelming majority of the animals go to the community activities. So they, and that's, again, that's not about what they're, because their genetics are what they're programmed with, but the, the drive and connection creates has has more power than the actual addiction so there's it is there's more to it than just the just the the, the biological component of it so it's it's really interesting stuff and and i talk about that because i think that also um at least when we're we're working with with people that work with the general public so not just first responders but but people that interface with the public looking at that at the whole person so yes, this person has substance use disorder, but what else is going on in their life? What other trauma is there? What other things have have occurred um, that also informs what their possibility for recovery is? 
if there are opportunities for that person to get go to get involved with social activities, to get involved with a community, which is, you know, shocking term events, AA is quite a community, NA is quite a community, the ability to get engaged with a community of, of like-minded or, or similar peers seems to have quite a bit of healing power in and of itself. Yeah, I, that, it's fascinating work, and it, it really just validates everything that we, we've been talking about in recovery, and that is that, and that's why you can't do recovery alone, um, or let's put it this way, it's, it's markedly more difficult if you, if you stay alone, and your chances are uh, less likely, and in this, this time of the pandemic, you know, we are here in the middle of September of 2020, and, and we have all these lockdowns going on, which makes people that are in that, that fellowship or that re- recovery community even more difficult, and um, this just demonstrates why we need to do more and more to um, to get people stay staying connected, and um, and so what we may do, Philip, if you'll if we can have you yep. back uh, next week, I'd like to talk to you yep. about uh, maybe we can even address you know how what is faces and you know what are you facing right now in the pandemic, and what are you doing to help people that are suffering in this time when they can't get to meetings or be in those those community groups uh, activity groups like you're talking about, and uh, and have further on discussion. So um, we'll do that. So, as always, okay. I'd like to say I don't represent any group. I do not represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it will help you too. If I've said something or if Phil has said something that does not apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But but try to take information that you can use for yourself and help others as well. That's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and help to impart the knowledge we have gained to others as well. So uh, with that, please visit their Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Also check out uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery and their website and just let us know how we're doing. And with that, Phil Rutherford, thank you for joining us and we will see you soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. Hey, thanks. I know you're up a time against a time frame here. So uh, you got to run right now? Yeah, I do have to run. I'll uh, I'll catch, I'll shoot you an email. We'll catch up next week. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Great job. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.